Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Uh, The Bible has long been portrayed as something filled to the brim with do's and don'ts. This like massive rule book of moral imperatives and designed to keep us on a straight and narrow path toward an upstanding and, and moral life. And while it's true that there are many commands in the Bible given to different people in different situations all throughout history, do you know what the most common one is? The most repeated directive that that transcends time and place, culture and context, given over and over and over and over again throughout Scripture, is simply this, fear not. Fear not. I came across this fact while reading a book by one of my favorite modern authors, a guy named Donald Miller. And in this book, he says it like this. The most often repeated commandment in the Bible is do not fear. It's in there over 200 times. That means a couple of things if you think about it. It means, number one, we're going to be afraid, and it means that we shouldn't let fear boss us around. Before I realized that we were supposed to fight fear, I thought of fear as a subtle suggestion in our subconscious designed to keep us safe, or more important, keep us from getting humiliated. I guess it does serve that purpose, but fear isn't only a guide to keep us safe. It's also a manipulative emotion that can trick us into living a boring life. I love how Donald Miller explains the frequency of this fear not command in the Bible by breaking it down into these two truths. Number one, we're going to be afraid. And number two, we shouldn't let fear boss us around. 200 times in Scripture, that frequency of that command tells us these two things. Number one, we're going to be afraid. We see people in Scripture afraid all the time. And number two, we shouldn't let fear boss us around. This morning, we're starting a teaching series based on these two truths and on this often repeated command, and it's called Fear Not. So over the next four weeks, we'll look at the stories of four people in the Bible who have experienced these two truths, four people who were afraid, but four people who didn't let fear boss them around. Instead, they found courage in God and stepped out in faith to do what he had called them to do. This morning, we're kicking off this series by looking at the story of Mary Magdalene. Now, I think one of the coolest parts, one of the most underrated parts of Mary Magdalene, one of my very favorite things about her is that she's one of the few people in the biblical story that Jesus calls by a nickname. Now, it wasn't uncommon for people in Jesus' time to be identified beyond their first name by some characteristic about them. For some people, it was by the patriarch in their family. Like another female follower of Jesus was known as Joanna, the wife of Chusa. One of Jesus' disciples was named James, the son of Alphaeus. So sometimes it was by that, by by your husband or by your father. That that was how you were known beyond your first name. Now for other people, it was based on where they were from. Like there's a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. 
the man who took care of Jesus' body and put it in the tomb after he died on the cross. His name was Joseph, and he was from Arimathea. That's how he got that name. We also see this with another Mary that knew Jesus, Mary of Bethany. That's how she's defined, Mary of Bethany. Now, Mary Magdalene was most likely from this town called Magdala, which was this ancient fishing city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But she doesn't notice, she doesn't get the normal identification of someone who was called by where they were from. She should have then been Mary of Magdala, right? But that's not what she's called. She's called Mary Magdalene, or according to Scripture, sometimes just Magdalene. And no doubt it was a playoff where she was from, but it went much deeper than that. You see, Magdalene is a name that means tower. And scholars think that she was called by that name by Jesus and early other Christ followers because of her steadfast faith. She was like a tower, immovable, no matter what was going on around her, no matter the storms or the winds or the swirling of life, she was this tower, this this immovable, steadfast faith even in the hardest of situations. The only other followers of Jesus who had nicknames were Jesus' closest friends. If you remember, Cephas was nicknamed Peter by Jesus, right? And he says, Peter means rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He nicknamed Cephas Peter. And then James and John, the two brothers, he nicknames them the Sons of Thunder. What a sweet nickname, right? Sons of Thunder. These three, Peter, James, and John, are often called Jesus' inner circle, like Jesus' closest friends, and for good reason. They were the only ones with him during some of the biggest events in his life. The transfiguration, the the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was arrested, before he died on the cross. Mary Magdalene is the only other follower of Jesus we know of to have a nickname that Jesus called her. And just to go back for a second... How cool are Jesus' nicknames for people, right? Rock and Tower and Sons of Thunder. So good. But not only is it a big deal that Mary Magdalene had a nickname because it was rare, it's a really big deal because she was a woman. This first century that Jesus lived in was something called a totalitarian patriarchy, which is basically just a, a fancy way of saying that free men ruled everything. They were in charge. They made every decision. And this totalitarian patriarchy was further entrenched by the Romans who ruled this entire part of the world during this time. You see, in the Roman Empire, free men were the only people actually even considered legal citizens. We talked about this a little bit during our series on Ephesians back in March. And we talked about the second century Roman lawyer and legal expert named Gaius who wrote all about the the kind of culture and patriarchy that existed during this time in his famous book called Institutes. Here's what he says. The public law of Rome did not recognize women at all. Women were answerable for their misdeeds to the family judge, the father or husband. Men were punished by the state, but the women had to be given over to the private jurisdiction of the family. Think about that. When a man did something wrong, he had, you know, a somewhat fair process. He went, went through a trial. There were witnesses. There were all these things. There was a judge, maybe a jury. However that worked, he went through the judicial system in Rome. Not women. They were, what does it say? Given over to the private jurisdiction of the family, the family judge, the father or husband. Wow. And they got to decide. He goes on. He says, It should be noted that nothing can be granted in the way of justice to those under power, i.e. to slaves, children, and wives. 
For it is reasonable to conclude that, since these persons can own no property, they are incompetent to claim anything in point of law. Slaves and children and women were unable to make any legal claim. They were the property, literal property, of the husband and the father. And this patriarch was given free reign to be judge, jury, and sometimes even executioner of his property. In fact, Gaius, this same lawyer, documented cases of husbands legally executing their wives for everything from infidelity to drinking wine without permission. They got to do what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. They were judge, they were jury, they were executioner. They were given over to the private jurisdiction of the family. Women were not people at this point. They were possessions. And as possessions, they existed solely to benefit the patriarch. Now, Jesus clearly believed that patriarchy was incongruent with the kingdom of God because we see him fighting against it throughout his life on earth. When men were ready to stone the woman caught in adultery, Jesus kneels down by her side and, and rescues her. When no one would go near the woman at the well because of her reputation, Jesus went over and talked to her. He asked her for water. He engaged with her. Mary Magdalene, the woman with a nickname, and the one Jesus included in his inner circle is the best example probably we have of Jesus pushing back against patriarchy. And as we look deeper into her life, we'll see this more and more. Now, before we look at her recorded life and kind of her interactions with Jesus, there are some big misconceptions about Mary Magdalene, and I think she deserves to have them corrected. So first off, I want to take a quick poll. How many of you have seen either Jesus Christ Superstar or The Da Vinci Code? Just quick hand up. Either one of those, yeah? Most of us, okay? Jesus Christ Superstar or The Da Vinci Code. No matter what you've seen in Jesus Christ Superstar or The Da Vinci Code, Mary Magdalene was not the wife of Jesus. She was not actually a former prostitute. No legitimate religious or secular scholar thinks that she was. This misconception actually began because of a 6th century sermon in which Pope Gregory the Great mistakenly conflates Mary Magdalene with the anonymous sinful woman. Do you remember her? She's at the party where Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house and she comes to him and she cries on his feet and she wipes his, her tears off with her hair and anoints him with perfume. This led to Mary Magdalene being wrongly depicted as a prostitute and occasionally even as Jesus' lover in art throughout the Middle Ages. And Pope Gregory did this, I think innocently enough, because Mary Magdalene first appears in Scripture in Luke chapter 8, and the the sinful woman, the anonymous sinful woman, appears in Luke chapter 7. So he just thought, well, you know, the sinful woman's with him in Luke 7. This must be the same Mary Magdalene we meet in Luke 8. But there's actually, like, no connection between these two women. In fact, in Luke 8, verse 1, it says this. After this, after his time at Simon the Pharisee's house... Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's only after that we meet Mary Magdalene and a group of other women that ended up being with Jesus throughout his time in Galilee. Now, back in 1969, the Catholic Church corrected this mistake by declaring Mary Magdalene distinct from the sinful woman. And in 2016, Pope Francis, the current pope, announced a major feast day in her honor. 
And when that happened, Lucetta Scarafia, editor of the Vatican-published Women Church World Monthly Magazine, said this. By doing this, he, as Pope Francis, by, by doing this feast for Mary Magdalene, he established the absolute equality of Mary Magdalene to the apostles, something that has never been done before and is also a point of no return. It's incredible. All that to say Mary Magdalene is quite possibly the most notable and influential woman in the New Testament, maybe aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus. So when she stood up to fear and stepped out in faith, it literally changed the trajectory of the world. You ready to hear her story? I mean, not if you are. Okay, let's dive in. We first meet Mary Magdalene during the early part of Jesus' three-year ministry back in Luke chapter 8. It says this, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, that's the disciples, were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Jesus meets Mary Magdalene in a pretty interesting situation, right? It says that she's demon-possessed, and he, he casts the seven demons out of her, and he heals her. Now, remember this because it's going to be super important. We're going to come back to it at the end. Remember this first encounter that Mary Magdalene has with Jesus. But from this point on, Mary Magdalene is so changed that she becomes one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She's a financial supporter of his, and she ends up being one of his closest friends as she accompanies him throughout the rest of his ministry alongside these 12 disciples and some other women. Now, a couple of years after traveling and ministering with Jesus, she finds herself in a, in a truly unbelievable and tragic place, watching her teacher and one of her closest friends die a criminal's death on a cross. Now, I want us to just try to put ourselves in the shoes of Mary Magdalene for a moment. Think what must have been going through her mind. She has seen miracle after miracle from Jesus. She watched him give sight to blind people, hearing to deaf people, feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and some fish, even cast demons out of people, including her. That was the first few years she's known him, but over the last couple of days, she's watched him be unjustly arrested, illegally tried, convicted, and now murdered. And the Bible tells us that all of this was enough to cause his 12 disciples to run away. Matthew 26 says, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Even Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle, the rock, who Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this rock, would deny knowing Jesus. Three different times. But not everyone abandoned him. Listen to how Mark describes it in his account of Jesus' life. With a loud cry, Jesus, is, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. She was with him, even when everybody else, all his disciples, the 12, would abandon him. She was there, watching him die. Then, as Jesus' body is removed and prepared for burial, Mary Magdalene still 
remains by his side. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath day was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. That's important because, you see, we believe from the evidence in the Bible that Jesus dies on the cross and kind of breathes his last breath at about 3 p.m. on Friday and then is buried that evening. So we've come to call that Good Friday. And he's buried that evening. And then at sundown, Sabbath begins. And, and everything just kind of stops for 24 hours. This is called a holy Saturday or, or silent Saturday. Mary Magdalene and some other women prepare the burial spices and perfumes for Jesus on Good Friday night. But they have to wait and rest during Sabbath on, on Holy Saturday. But then, at first light, early in the morning on Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene gets up gets the burial spices and, and perfumes all together and makes her way to Jesus' tomb. And here is where we come to the most climactic event of Mary Magdalene's life, the moment when she is confronted with seemingly insurmountable fear, and she's faced with a choice. She can either let that fear control her, or she can trust God and overcome her fear. Here's what happens when she arrives at the tomb that morning. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb all ready to perform this burial routine. She still hasn't given up being by Jesus' side. Even through his death, even through his burial, she is there. She is with him. And then she comes up upon one of the most chaotic events in all of the Bible. Her Lord, her teacher, her, her good friend is gone. And in his place, there's this guy looking like lightning who rolls away the stone from the grave's entrance. It's all so intense and chaotic and, and scary that the, the guys that are supposed to be guarding the tomb faint because they're so afraid. I imagine Mary Magdalene and the other Mary standing there, trembling, watching all of this. And the angel turns to them and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There it is. One of the 200 plus times that command appears in the Bible. Fear not. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, there's, there's lots of obvious reasons for Mary Magdalene to be afraid here, right? We just talked about what the event was like. It was so scary that the soldiers guarding the tomb, presumably guys who'd like fought in battles and stuff, literally pass out from fear. But there's also a, a less obvious reason for Mary Magdalene to be afraid here. Did you hear the assignment that the angel gave her? What did he tell her to do? 
Go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead. Do you remember what kind of culture this was? The kind of culture that Mary Magdalene lived in? Totalitarian patriarchy. She was property. She wasn't even considered an actual citizen by the government. Claiming that someone died and then came back to life was going to be a crazy claim for anyone to make, but Mary Magdalene couldn't be a legal witness of anything. Think about it like this. If a man in Mary Magdalene's life had something happen to him, say that he was robbed or something like that, and the only witness was Mary Magdalene, and he goes to the court system and he says, hey, I've been robbed. And they're like, okay, tell us about what happened. And he, he just tells the whole story. I was out on this road. This, this, this bandit came up. He stole all my stuff. He ripped all my clothing off. He took all my money. And he took off. And they're like, wow, did anybody see it happen? He's like, well, my friend Mary Magdalene was with me. Doesn't count. Why not? Because she's a woman. She can't be a legal witness to anything. The case would be thrown out. Because the only legal witness was a woman, and she couldn't legally witness anything. Now an angel is asking her to be the first witness to the most incredible event in the history of the world. Think about how scary that would be. Mary Magdalene has every right to be afraid in this moment. This is a scary situation, and maybe an even scarier assignment. So what does she do? Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, listen, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. I love that. They, they hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yeah, but, but they were filled with joy, and then they ran. They ran to tell the disciples what had happened. They didn't just step out in faith. They ran out in faith. They were still afraid. But they weren't going to let that fear keep them from going on this great adventure with Jesus. They ran to fulfill their assignment. So here's the question that I want to ask us this morning. What does it look like to be afraid yet full of joy and running after what God has called us to do? What does that look like? To, to be afraid, yeah, because, because life, because this world, because things are, things are scary. Turn on the news, scroll through Twitter for a second. Like, there's some scary things happening, scary situations that we're in. And, and many of us have been even called to, to scarier assignments inside of those situations, inside of those situations. There's so many times in my life, y'all, where I have let fear keep me from stepping out in faith and going after something that God has called me to. And I am telling you, I have always regretted it. Always. So what does it look like for us to be afraid, yeah, but, but filled with joy and running after what God has called us to? Some of you have been called into situations that feel overwhelming. Situations like Mary Magdalene's where, where others, it's been so scary that others have fainted. They've failed. They've fallen away. They've run away. It's scary. It's lonely. But here's the thing. Even in that scary situation, you are not alone. You're not alone. God is right there with you, and he's telling you, don't be afraid. Others of you have been given really hard assignments, tasks or callings from God that are scary. And like Mary Magdalene's task 
It seems like one that you can't fulfill. And the truth is, you can't do it on your own. But you aren't on your own. God is with you. He is next to you. He is whispering in your ear, do not be afraid. I'm here. Some of you know, as as I sit up here and talk, and you sit out there and listen, some of you, you know that you are supposed to step into a situation or step out into an assignment from God, but you are waiting until all the fear is gone to make a move. But that's not what Mary Magdalene did. And that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what this command means. Don't be afraid doesn't mean wait until all the fear is gone. It doesn't mean only take part in things that aren't scary. Like Donald Miller said, this command speaks two truths to us. Number one, we are going to be afraid. And number two, we shouldn't let fear boss us around. Do not be afraid means don't let fear make your decisions for you. It means don't let fear trick you into living a boring life, like Donald Miller says. Don't let fear boss you around. Because fear's boss gives us the power to overcome it. I love what Jesus said in John 16, 33. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You will be scared. It will be hard. But take courage. I am fear's boss. I have overcome the world. Don't let fear boss you around because I am fear's boss. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Don't be afraid. At this point, I know that you're probably asking how, right? How how do I trust Jesus? How do I not let fear boss me around? Let me tell you how Mary Magdalene did it because I think that it's the same for us a lot of times. Listen to how this passage passage ends. So think about it. Go back in the situation, right? Mary Magdalene, she is afraid yet filled with joy, and she is running to fulfill her assignment from God. And guess who shows up? Verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, what? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Mary Magdalene takes off running to do what God has called her to do. And as she is on her way, Jesus shows up to affirm her. That's a lesson just for some of us right there. As we are on our way going to fulfill the assignment, Jesus comes yet again with another piece of encouragement. Don't be afraid. Can you just see them? That they're, they're afraid. They're, I'm sure they're, they're weeping, but they're filled with joy. And they take off running, and they don't get but a few steps down the road, and Jesus himself shows up to affirm them. You're doing it, girl. Keep going. Don't be afraid. You've got this. And Mary Magdalene believed him. She believed him. And this is key, y'all. She trusted him. Why? Because she could look back on his faithfulness in her own life. She remembered what he had done. She remembered the freedom he gave her when he first met her, cast those demons out of her. She knew Jesus would come through because he'd never let her down before. This is how we trust Jesus. This is how we stop letting fear boss us around. We remember his faithfulness. 
We trust in the one who has overcome the world, the one who always comes through, the one who has never let us down. We're going to close this morning with a, a new song. And it's all about how our God is bigger than all our fears. He's bigger than anything that we encounter. And as we sing, here's my encouragement, here's my challenge to to myself and to each of you. Think back on times in your life when Jesus came through. When it seemed hard, when it was scary, when it felt insurmountable, but, but he came through. And whatever situation you are in right now, I don't even need to give you examples of situations because I'm looking into your eyes and I can see you thinking about the situations you're in and the assignments you've been given by God that you're scared of. Think about, as we sing, those times that he's been faithful. And trust him. Trust the one that's overcome the world. Trust the one that says, take courage. Trust the one that when he put all of Scripture together through his inspiration, he got to pick one command that was the most said over and over and over and over again. And he picked, don't be afraid, because I'm with you. Spend some time being grateful for what he's done. And then spend some time asking God to give you the courage to trust him to come through for you yet again no matter how scary your situation or your assignment might be. Trust him. Don't be afraid. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing together. Jesus, thank you for just the beautiful truth of your your word, your scriptures, God. Thank you that, like we just said, you could have made any command, the most popular, the most frequent one in all of scripture, and, and the one that you chose was don't be afraid. Because number one, you knew that there would be fear in this world. And number two, you did not want us to live lives where fear bossed us around. Because we know that at its ultimate, fear is just not trusting you. It's just not trusting you to come through. God, and so I pray that even as we feel the fear, even as we feel it rise up inside of us in the midst of scary situations and scary assignments that even if it doesn't all go away, we would be afraid yet filled with joy and running after what you have called us to do. We know that we can't do it on our own, though, God. Give us that courage. Give us that power like you gave to Mary Magdalene. I'm so struck by the fact that This woman that you cast seven demons out of and traveled around with that that never left your side, that was at the cross when you died and at the tomb when you were raised, that that you gave her this nickname, Tower Steadfast. And then, God, you call each one of us by a nickname, by your child, your son, your daughter. You know the hairs on our head. You know the steps that we've taken. You know our greatest fears. You know our greatest fallbacks. In you, we are fully known and yet fully loved. Help us to find courage in that. Empower us to fight fear in our lives, to step out in faith, to do what you've called us to do. Jesus name I pray.